No less days to sing your praise, O Lord, than when we first begun. Let this be a great day of hearing from the Word of God and knowing that the Spirit of God was merciful to us yet again. Father, we pray that you would search out and find our brother David on the road and that you would ease the anxiety of all of us who wait for him. May we hear from him soon and well, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12. Yet again, I'll read for you this morning two verses. Verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. O Father, in Jesus' name, may our minds be renewed for the asking, O Lord, and for our attentive service and worship, to hear your word yet again that enlivens us and nourishes us in the spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so verse 2 that I would have liked to have talked about last week, but of course time did not allow, but we'll get to it this week, do not be conformed to this world. We are saved out of the world, and we are saved into Christ. Peter said, you put away this crooked and perverse generation. We're saved out of something, we're saved into something. And by the way, you're saved into the church. You become part of the church, and it is incumbent upon us to state that profession of faith and to make our covenant promises to God in a local church body. It is the whole thrust of the New Testament. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the place in this epistle, friends, that presents the gospel as it is. The gospel is what I like to call a blessed dichotomy. It seems contradictory at times. God is sovereign, but man is still responsible. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, but make sure you walk right. Well, how can you still find fault with me, Lord, if you're sovereign? Friends, God is sovereign, but man is still responsible. It is the blessed paradox of Scripture. And a paradox, remember, is not a contradiction. It's a seeming contradiction that can be unraveled with further understanding and examination. So this is the place in the Word of God where Paul presents this blessed dichotomy between sovereignty and responsibility. So what am I saying about this? Well, it's simply this. Everything in the Christian life, friends, the blood of Christ, faith to believe, the new birth, 
the Holy Spirit being imparted into the saints, the fellowship of the, of the people of God, peace with God, justification. We stand rightly and righteously before God because he made us just before him by the blood of Christ. Sanctification. And ultimately, as we have been speaking lately, our future glorification, all these things, all these gifts are bestowed on us from above. We don't cause them to happen. It is God's choice. In other words, friends, our entire life in Christ is a blessed gift. Yet never believe it is just an ordinary gift. It's a series of gifts. And these gifts are blessings that are poured out of heaven into the hearts of people who God chose from eternity past to bless us. That's why I read this morning from Romans chapter 9 so that we would be ready to hear about the blessed doctrine of election. So God chose from eternity past to bless us and to save us and to sanctify us and to empower us. But in all the giving, there's this periodic urging in the epistles to act upon what we know. We've learned something and now we must live something. And so we see that biblical teaching has to do with our own efforts. Even our own strenuous efforts. How did the writer of Hebrews uh, challenge us? He said, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. Christianity is not an easy road. It wasn't designed to be. It's a blessed road, and it's worth all the trouble. But no one said it would be easy. And it comes a time when we have to take responsibility upon ourselves and act upon all the eternal blessings that we've been given. And so a simple adage of this relationship may be stated thus. I like to say God is sovereign, but man is still responsible for his actions. When you stand before the Lord and you're giving account for your sins, the judge will not hear you when you say, but you made me like this. He'll not hear you, gentlemen, when you say what Adam said. The woman that you gave me, that continual dripping of rain that you gave me, as Pastor Billy read from the Proverbs this morning. I don't know why we laugh at that. It's a, it's a serious scripture. But um, we're still responsible before God. Don't even think of blaming God for your sin. Paul anticipates the objection to this seeming contradiction. In chapter 9, as I read to you this morning, and so Paul writes, God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and whom he wills, he hardens. And you'll say to me, why does he still find fault? But the apostle will say, who do you think you're talking to, O man? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? And then he goes on with the, the potter makes the pot. The pot doesn't get to say what kind of a pot he wants to be. He might be a, a, a pot designed for honor or a pot designed for dishonor. And Paul goes on with the analogy, as did Ezekiel. He's, he borrowed this analogy from the prophets. <clears throat> Now, up to this point in the epistle, the apostle waxed very eloquently upon the fact of our justification. Several chapters dedicated to that. 
Now, our justification comes from God. He initiates it and he completes it in us. We don't contribute to our salvation. But famously, Paul wrote to the church of this very thing, and he wrote, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were obviously unable to contribute anything to the holy cause of Christ, he still saved us. For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Friends, if you're here today, it's because God designed that you would be here worshiping him and hearing the word of God would be a delight to your heart. Even though it comes across in places as hard, even harsh. And so we see the dichotomy plainly. It was God who determined. He, in fact, predestined us to be conformed to Christ, and so we shall be. And yet, here in the passage for today, it's we who must conform ourselves. He conformed us to the image of his Son, and yet it's we ourselves who must conform ourselves to him. He writes again, very famously in chapter 9, he says, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. And then he runs with this theme of sovereignty, which is nothing, nothing less than God moving upon us to change us, that is, to conform us to himself and transform our minds to think his thoughts after him. And so we read this, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs or tries or works hard, all of God who shows mercy. It is not of him who wills. What's another word for will? How about decide? We talk about decisions a lot. Make a decision for Christ. It's God who puts the will in you to make the decision. We do decide for Christ, but it's only a reactionary thing after having been acquainted with him inwardly through his spirit. God does the work in us And that's the very definition and function of sovereignty. He doesn't ask our permission to be saved. He just saves us. I didn't get asked about it. It was just thrust upon me. It was in my face from a preacher on one occasion. And I thought, who could resist that? For the first time, having heard God's word many times, for the first time, I knew it was God's word. It's a miracle when a person is saved when he's confronted at that point in his life, when the Spirit of God is before him, and you know those words are God's thoughts. God doesn't wait for us to initiate our own salvation as so many have wrongly presumed and wrongly preached. He does the work in us. He pours out his grace upon us and in us. Our salvation is the very proof and picture of irresistible grace. Perhaps you don't know that's one of the... Major doctrines of grace. There are five that we celebrate in the Reformed churches. Irresistible grace. What does it mean? It means no one says no to God. And just so we're in no way confused or argumentative on this point, the Word of God provides for us many vivid illustrations which I'm going to happily present before us this morning. Many illustrations of God's irresistible grace. His grace is his business until he makes it our business. And that's what he's doing in in Romans 12 too. 
It's been his grace up to now. It's his business. He justified you. He sanctified you. But now it's your business to begin the process of sanctifying yourself, to pulling away from this evil world and pulling toward the things of God. And so for my first illustration, I'm going to give to you this morning the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus. I hope everyone knows who Saul of Tarsus is. Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus is a city in Asia Minor, Turkey today, and there was a man named Saul from that city. And Saul was a Jew, and Saul was a Pharisee, and maybe you know some of his biography. Saul was a zealous Pharisee, right? Which you know were the ones who opposed Christ and actually drove him to the cross. Paul had many gifts, intellectual gifts. He was a charismatic person. He could get people to follow after him. He had all these gifts from God, and he asked for permission to capture and imprison and, as he says in his own words, murder the people of God. So he's on his way with every good and godly intention. Friends, that's something I want to stop and recognize. God doesn't really care as much about good intentions as we do. Well, I meant it for good. I don't know if I want to give the illustration I've given in the past. Terrorists that blow things up think they're doing good for God. Paul spoke of it. He said they think they offer service to God by opposing Christ. So it isn't all about good intentions, friends. Paul had every good intention, every good and godly intention. And I might add, to ignorantly undo what God has graciously done. Paul acted in ignorance, and he even said it himself later on in the, uh, in the New Testament. God saved the elect members of the so-called way. In that, in that time, the church was called the way. And we see that language in the book of Acts. And yet the apostle stands in league with the very zealots who killed Jesus. You know, they thought they had trouble with a living Savior until they found themselves murderers of a dead Savior. Jesus was more trouble to them dead than alive. Of course, they didn't recognize his resurrection. He was alive. God saved the elect members of the way And yet the apostle stood in league with the very zealots who killed Jesus to kill everyone who believes and prophesies in his name. You might remember after the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr, we read of Saul's increased zeal to add to the carnage. It said they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul, if you remember. He said, you go ahead and kill the the Christian, I'll, I'll watch your coats. And so we read, as for Saul, Luke writes, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, friends, let's bring to remembrance together the sordid events of Saul's life. He did not see the error of his ways and turn to the Savior he was persecuting. He suffered no pangs of conscience for harassing and killing the true people of God. 
Nothing of the sort took place. Paul didn't suddenly just see the light and change and say, you know, enough of this bloodshed, I've got to turn around. No, he went zealously on his own way to oppose God and to harass those who God showed his love to. So how did Paul become the great apostle? The Lord Jesus Christ burst in upon the scene and knocked the Pharisee to the ground. And so we read from the book of Acts again, from chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder. Still breathing threats and murder. Not like we come to Saul and he seemed to be softening. He seemed to be conscientious about all the trouble he'd caused. No, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priests and asked letters from him to the synagogues. You see, the... The people, we were naive Christians at the beginning. We kept going to the synagogues thinking we would be accepted there. That was the meeting place. That's where the Jews got together to talk about the things of God and and anything that was on their minds, really. So he asked letters from the high priest. That is, if he found any who were of the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, presumably for crucifixion, friends. Now, Saul did not transform himself into the image of his son. If you don't know the story, you need to go back and read it from the book of Acts, chapter 9. The son conformed and transformed the Pharisee. And so we read, he's on his way to Damascus. A light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul didn't recognize the voice. He didn't know the Savior by sight. He couldn't see him. He said later to Agrippa, the light was like the sun. He couldn't even look at it. Neither did he recognize his voice or his face. Saul, as Paul, would tell the story later to King Agrippa, saying these very things. He gave his testimony to the king long after he had been saved and had been the leader in the church. He told the king of his conversion from killing the people of God to becoming their spokesman, even their teacher. So we read from Acts 26 of Paul's testimony, where he said to the king, I shut them up in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, while thus occupied as I journeyed at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, when you're persecuted, Jesus takes it personally. Jesus was at the right hand of the Father. He wasn't being persecuted. Saul, the people of God, were being persecuted. Just like if someone persecutes your children, you're going to feel as though that's a persecution of you. I know I am. Friends, Paul's not conforming himself to Christ. Paul's not transforming himself by the renewing of his mind. He's happy with where his mind is. He's on his way to fulfill a task. All that transforming and conforming to Christ is being done for him and to him. And yet his whole life from then on is a testimony of his own willful contributions to the Christian cause. 
God just said, this is a man I've gifted for this hour. And regardless of who he's serving now, I'm going to burst in in my mercy and choose him to serve me. That's how it happened with Paul, and that's how it happened with you. Why that is controversial, I have really no idea. So the apostles' teaching on the sovereignty of God, he chooses whom he will choose, yet he also embraces the means of salvation. Yeah, people say very often, you'll hear them say, well, if God does all the choosing, and who's going to be saved, why do we evangelize? Because God is sovereign, and he, chose, and he also decided that the way you come to Christ is through hearing the preaching. So the God that cho- chooses the subject of salvation chooses the means of salvation, and the means is preaching. That's why we preach. He chooses whom he will choose, and he embraces the means, which is preaching. And so we read, then Agrippa said to Paul, that's the king, Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, I've read whole books on that one verse, one from a Puritan named Matthew Mead. It's an awesome book. It's amazing what the Puritans can do with a couple of words or one little phrase. But you notice, Paul couldn't persuade Agrippa to come to Christ. He gave him all the evidence, all the reasons, all the testimony of his own conversion. But unless God moved, Agrippa remained who he was. And he was, as Paul said, expert in all things pertaining to the Hebrews. All the Herods were. By the way, Agrippa was a Herod. He's the great, uh, great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was the one in the Christmas story. So Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. (laughs) And so he demonstrates that the God who chooses who is the same God who chooses how we must be saved. God is sovereign in all these things. Now, time would fail me to tell of all the stories of salvation by unconditional election. Friends, think about Noah. Has anyone ever said to you as a Reformed believer, you mean to tell me God created all these people in the world and only chose some to be part of his church? And my answer is, well, I don't know, but maybe you should ask Noah. For all we know, there were millions, certainly many, many people in that time And God decided that he would wipe them away with a flood and he would save only eight. Friends, if that is an election, I don't know what is. Noah's testimony has become the answer to every inquiry about election. I think of Noah as the poster boy of unconditional election. He didn't go to God and say, you know, the people are pretty bad. They're not worshiping you as I am. Why don't we make a big boat, even though it's never rained, and you make a flood, and I'll bring my family on, and we'll let all the rest of them go to hell. That wasn't Noah's idea. (laughs) Friends, in case you don't remember, Abraham, who was Abram at the time, did not worship God. He was part of Ur the Chaldees, moon cult. They worshiped the moon, right? So Abraham didn't seek God. God said to Abram, go to chapter 12 of Genesis, come out from your country and out of your kin. In other words, i got to get you away from these moon worshipers so I can teach you the ways of God. And just so there's no disagreement about these matters, 
God gives us Jonah. Jonah did not seek God, friends. The prophet ran away from God as far as he could. The record tells us, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. You've got to know that wasn't Jonah's idea. Jonah did not prepare a great fish to swallow himself any more than Noah thought up the idea about the ark. This is all in the predetermined counsel of holy God. And of course, there's my favorite example of election, which is Lazarus, friends, who becomes the, Jesus' object lesson to the people of his day. John tells us that Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then he said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go to wake him up. Friends, Lazarus was no, in no position to choose God. Do we agree on that? He was dead, friends, as we were dead in trespasses and sin. Please recognize that all these examples are for us to understand that neither, neither are we in such a position of ourselves. Yet in his own timing, And for his own purposes, the Lord transports us into a position of contributing our own efforts to the cause of Christ in the earth. And he's done that now at this point for 11 chapters. And then he bursts on the scene in chapter 12 and says, you've been justified, you've been sanctified, your glorification is promised, you have a certain hope in all of this, and now it's time to do something. It's the application time. So when the Lord said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, his irresistible grace again, right? Can you imagine? They roll the stone away. He calls Lazarus forth, and Lazarus comes out and says, no, thank you, Lord. I prefer to remain dead. God's grace is irresistible. You're here because he chose you to be here. And you fall on your knees and thank him for that. You chose me because I first chose you. You can't move on in Romans without knowing that. And we're going back to chapter 8, by the way. I wanted to come to this place of um, application because the first application, once you know of the greatness and the great sovereignty of God, is to worship that God. And so this apostle is unashamed to present to us the great and wonderful dichotomy. And that's where we are in Paul's great treatise to the Roman church. God has done all these wonderful things to us and in us and for us for his sake. And yet he calls upon us to work together with him, to engage our own minds, our own thoughts toward this mission. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Paul has never been reluctant or ashamed to put those two parts together. God is sovereign, man is responsible. And so he writes, Therefore, my brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do you remember these verses? Work out your own salvation, he said to the Philippians, with fear and trembling, because it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. There's the synergism now. You've been saved, and he's telling you how to act and to act. He combines the two directives in one. Obey God, 
because he's put it in your heart to obey. Work it out because he's working it out in you. And there it is. There's the whole of the epistle to the Romans. Doctrine, application, theory put into practice, receiving faith in Christ and adding to the glory of it. Not being saved by works, but rather being saved for the purpose of good works. Again, without blushing, Paul combines the two into one. To the Ephesians, he said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you say, why did... God save me to do good works and glorify him in the world. And what about these good works? When you want to talk about sovereignty? He said he created you for good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Friends, every good work you ever done was laid out before you in your path. And then you do it, even though God's the author even of that, even of the path, even of the things you do along the way, and yet you get credit for it. You get a reward in heaven for the things that you've done. It's not Paul's message to tout as a single voice either. Peter tells us the same thing. Peter goes on to proclaim this when he says, uh, or rather God acts sovereignly in our lives. He then goes on to urge us to act accordingly. And so he beseeches us to join in the effort with Christ. And so Peter writes, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness... But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And then he gives us certain characteristics, specific things he wants us to add. He tells us um, to add to our faith knowledge. That's what we're doing now. We're adding knowledge to our faith. He asks that when you have knowledge, add virtue. Why? Because now you know what things are virtuous in the sight of God. Add self-control. Why? Because you're not conformed to the world anymore. Don't just do what the world says to do, what the world models for us to do. And then he says that you should add perseverance. In other words, we're not a people who give up the cause. We don't grow weary in well-doing. So after 11 chapters that explain the divine prerogative, Paul now urges, in fact, he beseeches the brethren to act differently. And acting begins with thinking. Pondering, meditating is a godly practice. Your minds have been enabled to think God's thoughts after him, and so we're commanded to do so. He's given us new minds, friends. But then he's telling us to take part in the renewal of our own minds. So we spoke last week of the first initiative of the born-again saint. What did we say it was? It is to worship, right? He used the word latria, which means which has to do with the intellect. It means intelligent in um, logikos latria, which means intelligent worship. The word generally used for worship in the Greek New Testament is the word proskuneo. Proskuneo is a really beautiful word, and it presents a really beautiful picture because pros means like prostrate, to lay out there, right? And kuneo means to kiss. So proskuneo, which is translated worship in the English, means to bend and to kiss. And so we come before the Lord and we prostrate ourselves before him. And it's the, it's the picture of Mary kissing his feet and wiping them with her hair. That's worship. 
We're to be physically present, he said. We labored over that last week. Present your bodies. We're to be mentally present. He says, renew your minds. Rethink your every past conclusion. Cleanse your mind of every false way and false thought. And so we do it by immersing ourselves in the Word of God and in the body of Christ and in the things of God. And make no mistake, friends, it is a battle. The battle is in your mind. Satan has to get a hold of your thoughts to control you. You know, there's a lot of manipulation of language today. Have you noticed that? A lot of manipulation. Things don't mean the same thing they used to mean. They're after your thoughts. The enemy knows if he gets our thoughts, he gets us. Rethink your every past conclusion. People think they know about God, and then they come into the kingdom... And they realize everything they thought about God isn't true. Cleanse your mind of every false thought and false way. We all have them. So it begins, friends. The the application begins with corporate worship. Your intelligent service to God. It goes on in daily communion with God. Friends, we worship one day in seven corporately. But seven days in seven... We worship individually before God. And make no mistake, it is a battle. Paul writes of it that way. He said to the Corinthians, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for what? Pulling down strongholds. That means false doctrines. Casting down arguments. Talk about intelligent worship. You have to be... The, the, the battle for your mind is to cast down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and then he goes again with the same theme, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. It's like we take the thoughts and conclusions in our head and we bring them out and we wash them in the water of the word before God and we put what's left back in. Be not conformed to this world. That's the negative side of this. That's the thou shalt not. That's the don't do this. It urges us not to be something and not to do something. We're not to go along to get along with the world. We're not under the sway of the God of this world as the whole world is. Remember what Paul asked, how shall we who are dead to sin live in it any longer? Remember from chapter 6? Friends, I am a serious skeptic. I'm almost a cynic. I don't trust what I hear today. There's so much falsehood out there. The saints must must always be skeptical of the broad way and the wide gate. Well, everyone's going that way. It must be the right way. Just so skeptical of that. For Jesus preached, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Be careful of the broad way, the way everyone's going. Our way is narrow, Jesus said, and it's difficult. Difficult is the way that leads to life. There are few who find it, he said. Does that mean there are few who are elect? It's his words. I suppose few is a relative term, but in relation to all the people in the world, I imagine it's safe to say there are few who find it who find life, who find the Savior. 
And so we have this word conform, and, and you know what it refers to? It refers to fashion. I looked up conform in the lexicon, and you know what it said? See fashion. That said it all to me. You know, that said it all. Um, the word means fashion or, sh- or shape, uh, to fashion or shape a thing. Friends, the apostle is telling us not to go after the fashions of the world. Fashions from clothing to thinking in this world are transitory things. If you think of it in terms of clothing, and I'm not really interested in talking about clothing fashions today, but it makes a good illustration, doesn't it? We want to dress like the world, go to the world's entertainment, do everything the world does. Friends, there's a name for it. It's called groupthink. That's for people who don't think. You just know, well, everyone says this. Sounds good. I don't have, I don't have time or trouble to even uh, bother finding out if it's true, so I'll just say it too, and I'll look smart like they do. They sound and look smart, and I'll look smart. It's called groupthink. Friends, fashions die out. They don't stay the same. I've got to tell you a little illustration here, all right? It was brought to me by my boys recently. They said, Dad, mustaches are back in style. Now, I'm going to ask Karen. I think I grew a mustache in college, and I don't think it ever came off because I'm really a habitual guy. If you look at, if you look at pictures of me 20 years ago, I'm wearing the same stuff. I always have like a ball cap on and like a, 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 a white uh, short sleeve shirt with the cuffs rolled up with pockets. It's like I've probably had 20 of those, but it always looks like the same one in all the pictures. I'm really a creature of habit. Um, but fashions come and go. So once the mustache was... The only difference was there was a time when the mustache came down. It was the Fu Manchu the kind of thing. It had the, had the Harley. Nothing against all you Harley guys. Um, <clears throat> fashions change. They die out. And then just when we get used to it, they come back. So the boys told me, Dad, mustaches are back in style. I guess they came back in. Here's the theory. With the new Tom Cruise movie... Um, about the pilots. Top Gun. <laughs> I, I, that's what I'm told. So myself and I guess Geraldo Rivera are now back in style. <laughs> Proudly back in style. Of course, Geraldo's, you know. See, I think his mustache is the wrong type. Mine's the right type. No, but fashions die out. So don't be on the copying end of those whose lives and lifestyles are destined to expire. Why are you going to copy something that you know is going to run out? I'm going to make a prediction to you today. All this wokeness, it can't stand for long. It just can't stand the tests of time. I'm already watching women, you know, liberal feminists taking back their rights. Wokeness destroyed the women's movement. But don't just follow blindly after the world's fashions. Don't just do it because they do it. Fashions come and go and fashionable people come and go. The people of God are permanent, friends. So don't take on perishable customs and beliefs. Take on eternal ones, and that's what Paul's teaching here. He then went on to urge us, he in fact commands us to positively act in a certain way. Don't do worldly things, do godly things. Be transformed, and it starts with our thinking, always. It's always about the thinking. Casting down arguments every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You say, oh, that's impossible. That's why you work hard at it. Think God's thoughts after him. Isaiah 
told us very plainly that there are two types of thoughts. There's God's thoughts and there's our thoughts. For your thoughts, he wrote, are not my thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. So conform to mine. We read from the psalmist, how does a young man cleanse his way? How shall his thoughts be renewed? How shall his mind be transformed? And then he tells us, by taking heed according to your word. What's the apostle teaching here? Is that we're to build godly character in ourselves, in each other. There's to be some visible, palpable token of God's character in us. And I'm going to tell you why I'm saying visible and palpable. It's our responsibility to build it into ourselves. We are to cultivate it and to water it with what Paul called, said to the Ephesians was the washing of the water by the word. And make no mistake here, this transformation does not begin with conduct. We think it does. Jesus tried to wean us of that thought. We must become something before we do something. You're a human being before you're a human doing It starts with thinking, friends. You have to be something inwardly. Jesus' whole thrust in the Sermon on the Mount was to discount popular knowledge for godly knowledge. Our thoughts for his thoughts. And he didn't start with actions. It started with inward knowledge. You should recall this. Jesus said, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Was Jesus saying, I'm I'm changing that? You can now commit adultery? Of course not. He said, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his his heart. What he's saying is because you're not right inwardly, you've already committed the sin. You have to be transformed inwardly. um, It starts by not acting on your old thoughts and conclusions. By acting upon your renewed conclusions, you become transformed. And that's the positive in that it's something that we actively take part in. Be not conformed is passive. It means just say no. A little nod to, was it Nancy Reagan? Just say no. Be transformed is positive. It's something that you do. The other thing, something you don't do, don't be conformed to the world, but do this. Be conformed to Christ. Take on the disciplines required to renew your minds. Christians may not be illiterate. You know... I remember back in the early years when I was at, at Mullen Hill Church, Pastor Ken was the pastor, and my good friend Dave Kimball was the, uh, you guys remember that, Dave Kimball was a retired minister at the time, he was my, my very good friend, and he was um, just a, a very thoughtful, intelligent man with letters, he was graduated valedictorian of his seminary class and all this, and they had a ministry in the back of the church up there, like in the pews there. And they had books that were put out. And Dave, in his retired years, was reading these books and writing a little synopsis in each one and putting the card in so that Christians could go and if they were seeking a certain emphasis in their walk with Christ, there was all these books that he had read. He read two or three books a week and made a synopsis of it. For several years he did this. And sadly, he had Alzheimer's and it all began to uh, crumble. But... um, It was all about transforming your mind, reading good literature. But reading, Christians cannot be illiterate. The Hebrews are the most literate people in history. There are whole cultures, I mentioned last week, who without a Christian influence never even thought of developing an alphabet or a written language. It was all oral. 
No, the Christian cannot be illiterate, and if he comes to Christ illiterate, it's incumbent upon him to learn to read. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. We think our way through life. Thinking is the apparatus that guides us. It is part of our spirit, our intellect. We can get by in the world without thinking. Friends, you can just go along in the world. You can get by in the world without thinking. I see, I'm amazed when I hear these billionaires and trillionaires talk. Sometimes I'm like, how did someone so stupid get so rich? <laughs> no, have you ever thought that? You ever heard it's like, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't mention that. I just remember Ted Turner. Remember Ted Turner? He, was the, he started CNN and he did all these things. He was this billionaire. I think he married Jane Fonda at one time. But he couldn't speak. It always amazed me. Strike that all, Joe. You can't have that out there. They'll take me right down. But um, so often I hear these, you know, these big tycoons, and they, they have nothing to say. Um, it's not hard to get along in the world without thinking. You can just go along with the crowd. It's like I remember one time years ago, I was with some friends, and we went to Mardi Gras down in New Orleans. Anyone ever done that? Good. I wasn't a Christian then. I won't do it again. But um, it was so crowded. I was standing in a crowd, and I was moving. I wasn't walking. The crowd, I I swear, it felt like I was lifted up, and I was just in this crowd. If I ever had to get out or had to go to the bathroom or something, forget about it. I mean, you were just being moved along by the crowd. That's how the world works. I didn't have to think. There was no thinking involved. I was in the crowd. I was doing what the crowd did. You can get along in the world that way, but not in Christianity. The Christian, when you're in the Lord, you've got to be a, th- a thinker. You've got to be someone who takes it upon himself, as difficult as it may be, to go in and search out the things of God. You can't find them initially by a search. You have to be you have to be met by God with faith first. But once you're in the Word of God, you, you are open up to this whole new world of knowledge of eternal things and spiritual realities. So we can get by in the world without thinking. Just conform yourself to the ready-made thoughts of others. I'm, I'm convinced all you'd have to do is know a few headlines. Maybe not even that. You know? In the kingdom of God, it's not so. Transformation is an active thing. It takes effort. The apostle is telling us that now that we know so much doctrine, so much truth, we're now in a position to act upon it for the cause of Christ and for the betterment of mankind, which is a collateral benefit. Now, another linguistic point I want to make here, because I thought it was so wonderfully illustrative of what he's saying. The word for transformed is the same word used by Matthew when he spoke of Jesus being transfigured. That's interesting, don't you think? Now, if you don't know what that is, you have to go back to um, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and Luke covers it too. You know, Luke did not use that word. He used a different word for transfigured, and it was believed that because Luke wrote to Gentiles, he didn't want to elicit in their minds the idea of animism. The idea that pagans have of being, tra- of being transfigured into animals. So he didn't use the word because that's what it means. And so the word is metamorpho. And when you see it in the notes, I put the hyphens in there. Those, that's just to help you 
memorize the word if it helps you. Metamorpho, what does it sound like? It sounds like metamorphosis, which means a physical change, right? It went through a metamorphosis. On the Mount of Transfiguration, go back and read this in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus was transfigured, it says, and we call it the transfiguration. We make a noun out of it. It's the transfiguration, right? His divinity was revealed. He went up on the mountain with his inner circle. You know, see, here's the other thing you find out about God. God has favorites. I've heard preachers say that he doesn't have favorites. It seems to me he does. He had 12 apostles, and he took three, Peter, James, and John, up to the mount, and he said, don't tell the other guys. He did that a lot. So he took them up, and they saw him in his glory. God came. God spoke. This is my son, remember? And they, and they didn't want to leave, and, they, and, and Elijah was there in his glorified state, and so was Moses. And they were there, and the, and the apostle said, let's make tents so that we can all like hang out and talk. And uh, suddenly it was over. Jesus was transfigured. He was transformed. And it's the same word, which I find interesting. When Moses came down from the mount, the people ran to see him. He had the commandments in his hands, remember? But they couldn't look on his face, and they were afraid because he had been in the presence of God, and his face lit up. He had to put a little veil on his face. You remember the story? See, if you don't know these stories, you're not being transformed. You should already know this when I come to preach it, but if you don't, go back and read it. Very simple. Go back to the book of Exodus and read it. And so his face was shining bright due to close contact with God. There's something in us that's visible. I thoroughly believe that. When a Christian is in the mix, when a Christian is in the conversation, why do you think when you're traveling along the road and maybe you're in trouble or maybe you need directions or maybe you're confused about something or you've had a bad time and you run into someone and you find out they're a believer and you have this instant connection? I've taken people to dinner out on the road because it was so wonderfully... um, you know, magnificent, really, to run into someone who was of like mind in the things of God. Um, it's because there's a light that shines forth. There's something that gives the other Christian comfort, and there's something that puts the world on notice. This is a person who knows something. His thoughts are different than your thoughts. The faithful of this world are to become these lights of transformation of transfiguration in the midst of the people. It begins inwardly, always inwardly, but it progresses outwardly. That's the very application Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light, the transfiguration light, shine before men. That light that was on Moses' face. Come into contact with God through the word. What did Jesus show forth in himself on the mountain of transfiguration? Well, he showed forth his divine nature in human form. You know, it says he looked like any other man. The Bible says that repeatedly. Came in the flesh. Um, how does Isaiah say something like he was not comely that men should esteem him? And his, just his outward appearance was, was very common. But this day, his divinity came through. So Jesus showed forth his divine nature in that moment. We are to be, as Peter wrote, partakers of the divine nature. We are to show forth the glory of God in our walk in this world. Jesus proved his divinity by the transfiguration. 
We are to prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God by our transformation. The church, the saints, all the people within the church are to be different than the world. We're not to be the same. You know, when I came in to the faith, I don't know, 35 years ago or so, we always talked about the church and the world and the church and all the world's you know, going to hell in a handbasket or it's, it's, it's falling apart and we don't want to be like that. And, um, and, and people were thinking that God's hand of wrath would be upon the earth and surely it was. And then we had um, 9-11, you remember, very famously, and a lot of preachers came out and said, this is the hand of God on the earth. We accepted, we recognized that that could happen. But I've noticed over the years that the church, rather than being a refuge from society, started to be a reflection of it. And it became more and more like the world, and we called it seeker-friendly or something, where we wanted people to come in and not notice that they were in a different culture. You know, they didn't want to notice it. We didn't want them to, to have any shock. We thought it would be better. Um, no, they should have come in and realized that we're not conforming to their world. We're being transformed into a new one and a new way of thinking. That's the whole point. God's saving us out of something. He's saving us into something. So friends, this glory that we show forth in this transformation, it's not a mask or a costume. It's not a veneer. It comes from within. It's our nature now. And it comes with effort, and it comes with renewed thoughts and a transformed mind. And I have one last lesson to teach today about all these things. Do not be forgetful. We are a forgetful people, and that's why God gives us a seven-day schedule. So we come in and get reminded each week. So don't be forgetful. Friends, this forgetfulness is a curse. It's also very natural to forget. Solomon lamented the fact. He said, there's no remembrance of former things. No remembrance. James said, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed, he writes. Don't be forgetful. Peter says the same thing, and this is my promise to the church today. I stand with Peter in this, and I close with this. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. It's good to be repetitive because we're forgetful. It's not just because I'm an old man, I say the same things over and over. I know old men do that, but that's not why I'm doing it. Peter said, yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, to stir you up by reminding you. Moreover, I'll be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things, even after my decease. There it is, after my decease. You have all these. There's thousands of them. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. O Father, renew our minds and help us in the effort, O Lord. Give us the spiritual unction to put our every spiritual effort and spiritual gift into the process, O Lord of edifying ourselves and the church, our families, our children, 
Oh, Father, we praise you for these things, and we ask for your strength and guidance in all of these efforts, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.